Podluck, serving up bite-sized tastes of the best theology. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Grab a plate and let's dig in. back with another special edition of the Podluck in this Corona Kegger season where we're bringing together people to share the best of what they have to offer while we are all social distancing from one another. And I'm here to keep your ears happy because that is something that I can do. So today I am super excited to have with me uh, my dear internet friend that I was going to meet in real life and then, you know, we all social distance. Today, I'm talking with Kelly Nikondeha and hearing all about her book that just released yesterday on Tuesday. Um, it's called Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom. And if there's one thing you should know about me, it's that I love the Bible a whole lot, and I love the stories and the messages and the wisdom and the way that the Spirit speaks to us through the Scripture. I super-duper love when we are picking up on what the women are doing in the text, which is not a way that I grew up reading Scripture, um, but it has been incredibly life-giving for me in the last several years of my life. And Kelly does this so brilliantly in Defiant, picking up not just the themes of the Exodus story that so many of us are familiar with, right? Whether we grew up in church or whether we like pretty much lived in church because we were there all the time or whether we like never went into a church. The the themes of the Exodus story have permeated so many aspects of, of culture and of life. And so to look at those through the themes or through the lens of what are the women doing? What are the, who are the women in the Exodus story? How are they helping to shape this narrative? And what can they teach us about freedom, right? That you have this story where frequently we look and we say, you know, oh, Moses is this great liberator. And that's, that's true. And also there's a lot of women in the story who are playing important roles, who are helping to move God's plan for liberation forward. And it's, it's just so good. It's so good. And so I would highly encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. There is an ebook. So if you are social distancing and you're trying not to like order anything and make people out, be out there delivering packages and stuff, good for you. And get the ebook and read it on your, on your e-reader. My, my judgments about e-readers being a soulless way to read books have been suspended for the moment, mostly because I have no more judgmental capacity for, for anything but people who are, who are being silly right now about, about virus stuff. Anyway, you should get a copy of Kelly's book. It is available now wherever books are sold, um, whether you get an e-book or a paper copy. Totally up to you. Should be on the top of your pile for reading while you are social distancing, though. So... I'm going to roll tape on this, grab a plate, and let's dig in. I would say that, you know, I grew up in an evangelical setting uh, where the men did all of the heavy lifting. And the women were more of the kind of the softer side of ministry. And so you saw the men were the ones who were the elders and the deacons. 
deacons and the ones that were in the pulpit and the women were doing all of the supportive supplemental uh, domestic chores to uphold the, the work of the church, uh, very gendered. And then as I became an adult, I stumbled upon the Exodus narrative. And I, you know, this is a story that is foundational in the life of uh, the Jewish community, right? It's, it forms their imagination. It is the cornerstone uh, for so much of how uh, the Israelite people understood themselves and their relationship with God. Um, and so it's a, it's a huge piece in understanding, you know, our, I think our theological imagination and our underpinnings is this Exodus story. And it starts by naming the 12 men of Jacob, which, you know, is a good way to begin a story or way of naming the leadership structure. When you get the 12 names of the men or the 12 names of the chieftains or the 12, you know that these are the leaders. And so right up top, we are given uh, the, the names of, of these 12 sons. So we know who the leaders are. And then the story goes through and names off, or not actually names off, but what it does is it moves through a, a series of successive moves all by the women, 12 women. And all of a sudden you start to see, if you have eyes to see, and it took me a long time to get there, this is the other leadership structure that is in operation. It is the companion piece to the sons of Jacob, and you actually need both. <laughs> you actually, freedom requires the full complement of humanity. It requires men and women, the leadership structures of both for us to fully engage in liberative praxis. Um, and if our communities are going to be free, it is only going to happen because we are all leaning into the liberative work that we have to do. Men, and women. So we can't get free without the women. Moses couldn't, and neither can we. That's my, I will, I will go to my grave believing we can't get there without the women. So what do the women do in this story? If I were to give you, you know, a, a summation, I would say that the women defy Pharaoh. They rescue Moses and they plunder Egypt. So what does that look like? So we see um, our beloved midwives, Shifra and Pua. Uh, they're the first ones that are named in the story. And these women stand in front of Pharaoh and refuse to do what he says. I mean, they walk out of the palace knowing full well, we are not going to participate in this infanticide. We are not. We will not look in order to discriminate. We will deliver every baby that comes through a birth canal, um, we won't participate in what Pharaoh wants. And, and at some point he calls them in because he finally realizes that his plot isn't working. And they, they come in and they tell him a bold-faced lie when he says, what happened? Oh, well, the women, they just, these Hebrew women are so strong and the babies come so fast. And it's just a lie. And God rewards their disobedience, right? But here we are, these women defying Pharaoh. You know, and of course, pharaohs, I have to say, are always fixated on greatness 
and they're always fixated on numbers, they always underestimate the women. And if you think I'm talking about today, yeah, because Pharaoh's tactics haven't changed much in terms of the way they see and understand the world um, and also what their Achilles heels are. So again, I will go to my grave saying it requires us women to be engaged. Anyways, so we have these two women who uh, defy Pharaoh. I believe that they are just the, the, they are the leaders of their, the midwifery guild. So there's a whole group of women already who are conspiring against Pharaoh. But then rescuing Moses. And here we come to his birth mother, Jochebed, who at great risk gave birth during uh, you know, under huge duress, under the injustices of enslavement, she has, and knowing that her baby boy could be killed, she's still at great risk, births a baby. Of course, we have the sis little sister, Mir well, his big sister, Miriam, who gets involved in the action. And in very unlikely, we have a woman across the river, an elite woman, who we are going to find out actually is from Pharaoh's own house, one of his daughters. And these women work together to save this baby. You know, one of, you know, Jochebed has the baby and she hides him as long as she could. And, and then she constructs a raft and, and she gets him across the river. And, you know, her young daughter, Miriam, kind of steps in and introduces these two women, kind of makes a way for this very unorthodox connection, which I really think, thank God for the young who see connection and see possibilities that we, because we're so married to the status quo, don't see. But this young girl saw, wait a minute, this rich woman has the money and the capacity to, to do a, a wet nurse contract with my mom. <laughs> and that will get us some money. It will also save, you know, my little brother. My mom's heart won't break because at least she'll have a few more, you know, a couple more years with, with this little boy. Like she came up with that. Well, and then, you know, this elite woman steps in, but Thea uh, is the traditional name for her and takes what is, you know, you know, adoption wasn't really prevalent in Egypt, but it was actually, it was in the books, but she takes this little archaic form and she just twists it enough to use it as a mechanism for justice to save this boy. And so we have these women working together to rescue Moses. But then if we lurch ahead in the story, you know, Moses is an adult and he's, you know, fled Egypt and he's on the other side of the desert in Midian. You know, the two midwives, we have um, the three women who engaged in, you know, the, the saving. And then we have the seven sisters in Midian. So now we have our 12 women. And among them is Zipporah, who is going to become Moses's wife. And... You know, he's living with them, has a couple kids. Um, the bush burns, and it's time for him to go across the desert and step into his salvific role, which, by the way, Moses would not have had the imagination, I don't think, for what he had to do had it not been for the women in his life who modeled it for him. It was his mother singing liberation lullabies to him. It was his sister, um, you know, showing him. It was his, you know, even his uh, adoptive mom, making sure he knew who he was and what injustice looked like, even under, you know, Pharaoh's on the roof. These women showed him what it looked like. And so 
he knew what to do. He at least had a sense of, of what direction to go because the women taught him. And so he, you know, he's on his way across the desert and we get this crazy story where God tries to kill him in the middle of the night. But in the middle of the night, Zipporah, his wife, reaches for the flint, reaches for the baby, does a circumcision, says some words, does some things. And all we know is that at the end, God is satisfied, Moses survives, and he goes on to his liberation work. She saved him too. Uh, she knew what the what the the sacramental act was that had to happen in that moment. And we may not understand on this side of the text, but she understood, you know, and that day she stepped into her vocation and, and anyways, I love Zipporah. <laughs> so all of these women help rescue Moses. And then we get to plunder. They plunder Egypt. This took me a while to see is that there are stories of these women forming neighborly relationships, Hebrew women with their Egyptian neighbors. Now we tend to think of the story in terms of the extremes. There are the brickyards on the one side of the Nile and there's Pharaoh's palace on the other side of the Nile. And those are our bookends. But there's a lot of messiness in between. There's a lot of people in between. There's a lot of different socioeconomic realities in between. And so you can imagine that there would be Egypt, there would be Hebrew women who probably lived under Egyptian roofs, right? Serving women, you know, in those communities. But there would also have just been the, the laborers, not all, some of them would have been Egyptian. You'd have Egyptian low-class, low-income uh, labor uh, folks, and maybe they were in the same neighborhoods as some of the Hebrews, or maybe their communities were adjacent to each other, but they had the opportunity to be neighbors, to form relationships, to connect, to build favor with one another. And so then when we hear that there was the 10th and final plague, and Pharaoh finally says, okay, go, get out. We see that the treasure of Egypt moves from Egyptian hands into Hebrew hands. How? Through neighbors. Neighbors said, here are my clothes, here are our family jewels, here are, here's everything we have. So is it plunder or is it reparation? I think that it was reparation and that plunder is actually a high hyperbole. It probably felt like plunder for the people, you know, for the elites. It certainly felt like being plundered to Pharaoh. But the neighbors who had relationship knew this was the right thing to do. Take the family jewels that I have. It's not much, but take them and go and start a new life. It was, it was, it was reparations. And so here we have again the women defying Pharaoh, rescuing Moses, plundering Egypt. They are the liberation practitioners. They're hardwired for freedom. They are the badasses who knew what to do. Even if they didn't get their name in any darn book, they knew what to do to save their communities. I think it's the same today. So these 12 women, I think, show us what faithfulness looks like in perilous times. You know, in the 
if you're enslaved in Egypt, it looks like one series of, of actions. Um, but if you're fighting pharaonic forces in 2020, I don't know, maybe it looks like dealing with family separation. Maybe it means coming up against economic exploitation and inequity. Maybe it means thinking about how we push against uh, white supremacy and other forms of xenophobia and inhospitality to refugees. There's so much deathliness. Um, but what is it going to look like for us? You know, what are, what are the strategies that we're going to devise and deploy to enact liberation for our communities? You know, I think the excess narrative is not necessarily meant to be a one to one. If uh, we lie to Pharaoh's face, you lie to your Pharaoh's face. It's, it's actually, I think, meant to crack open our imagination. This is what it looked like for us. But what does it look like for you? We're just getting the ball started. Now it needs to recalibrate your 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 trajectory so that you imagine differently, so that your whole theological um, underpinning moves in a different direction. Like, oh my gosh, yes, we can defy. We can invitation that these women give us is um, you know what? Where do you, this is what we did. What are you going to do? Because you have some pharaohs that are beaten down pretty hard. And you have some injustices that are breathing down your necks. And you have children that are endangered. And you have women who are losing family members. What are you going to do? And again, I still think it's the men and women working together, doing our liberative best so that we all are free on the other side. So I believe that this uh, is what faithfulness looks like. And, you know, I am sad that it took me into my adulthood to see these women. I wish um, that I grew up not just hearing the story of Moses and Aaron, um, but that at a younger age, I would have understood they would Moses wouldn't have made it had it not been for these women. And he wouldn't have known what to do if he didn't have them as models and partners. Um, so we all get free together. And I, to me, this is a, these women are a great archetype when we think about women, when, what is women in ministry look like? Um, I don't buy into the gendered roles, not anymore. I think women in ministry looks like le leaning into our liberation mandate and stepping up. So this, this is what I've been working on. And uh, I love these women. I want us to be these women. <laughs> <laughs> I share that hope. That would be amazing. So I'm wondering if you could just take a minute and maybe say a little bit more about what is liberation as you understand it. It's, a word that you throw around a lot as you're talking. Um, it's it's not in the subtitle of the book. I don't think, I think you say freedom. Uh, but obviously if we're thinking about uh, how do we get free or what the women have to teach us about freedom, like then there's something that we need to be freed from, right? We need to be liberated from. And so uh, here in the United States, where I have lived my whole life, we have very... Uh, specific understandings about what we mean when we say freedom or, or liberty. And they're very coded oftentimes. Uh, so they're very loaded terms. And so I'm wondering, 
if if the point of of Exodus is to crack open our imaginations, what is liberation in that imagination? We steered away from using liberation in the title because it is it can be a shocking frightening word for people. <laughs> so, so I think we went with freedom, even though if you read the book, you know, it's liberation from start to finish. But then again, I'm a liberation theologian. So this is the lens through which I see and understand the text. Um, I'm deeply shaped by the liberation theologians from Latin America, uh, both men and women. Um, and so that comes out, I think, both in my theology, but also in my, in my work. And you'll see it in the book. But, you know, I go back to um, Luke 4, where Jesus, you know, it's, it's one of our, one of the, one of the early Christian church's memories about where Jesus started. Um, and, you know, Mark, Mark, Mark gives different, a different place where Jesus started, but it's, it's not disconnected. But here in Luke, we see Jesus stepping into, uh, you know, into the synagogue and he is giving one of his first public addresses as Luke tells it, and he talks about Jubilee. He, he quotes a passage from uh, the Isaiah scroll, or reads a passage from the Isaiah scroll, which is what we would call the Jubilee passage. Jubilee, if I can be, the most honest way to talk about Jubilee is that it is an economic practice. It is an economic policy. It is a policy that God put in place Actually, when when people when everybody made it to the other side of uh, uh, freedom, plenty of time. <laughs> he doesn't know it yet, but he had plenty of time with these people to help reshape their thinking about what life would look like. And one of the things that that comes into play is you need to have an economic practice. There's going to be the rough and tumble of the economy. There's going to be ebbs and flows, but nobody should be permanently locked into poverty. And so he, he, he talks about land, that there is going to be certain times, let's say the 50th year, where you're going to hear the horn blow and land has, deeds have to go back to the original families. If you got that land by unholy means, if you got that land by exploiting your neighbors and playing the economy to your favor, but to the detriment of your neighbor, guess what? You've got to give it back. And if you um, have somebody who's indebted to you and therefore they're working in your house sold for free to work off their debt, you got to let them go. Oh, and if this underlying injustice, you write off that debt. Now, Jubilee is good news to the poor because they're getting their land back. They're getting their, their life back. They're getting their the indebtedness is gone. I mean, imagine my husband who grew up in extreme poverty says, you know, there's no better news than finding out that your debt's gone. If you're a poor person, there is no better news than somebody saying your debt is gone. And so we get this picture where Jesus right up front says that his ministry is about, it is as, it is as tangible as an economic policy that sets people free. How can that not be? about material well-being. It's not just about our soul and our spirit, though of course that's part of it. But it is also, and what I think Americans often miss, it 
is the real lives that we live, the economic world that we are a part of, the ways in it impinges on us, the injustices that, that shape our actual lived experience in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And to take that seriously is what a good, I think, what good liberation theologians do is we understand you can't pull apart our material life and our spiritual life. They are interconnected. And so we take seriously the, the material lives, the real lived experience of indebtedness and homelessness and food insecurity. Those are all parts of uh, what our tradition teaches us. Um, that Jesus wanted, he wanted to feed us, not just our souls. He wanted to, he wanted our bodies to be well fed. It's part of, when I think of freedom, I think of the freedom to have enough, right? Not, not hoarding, but, but enough. Podluck, thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, please do pick up a copy of Kelly's latest book, Defiant, uh, that hit stores and Amazon and everywhere yesterday. Uh, you can also pick up her first book, uh, which is called Adopted. Um, I think it, the subtitle is A Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Something to that effect. Also very good. Um, so check out her work. Um, and sit with uh, the book of Exodus and the woman, women in the book of Exodus and let them crack open your imagination for what freedom could look like, what liberation may be possible. Thanks so much again for tuning in to the Podluck. I've been your host, Megan Westra. Make sure that you click subscribe. And if you're enjoying these episodes and you have a little bit of extra time while you're social distancing, leave us a rating or a review. That's super helpful to help other people find us. Tune in next.